Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, August the 4th, 2022. It's lunchtime early afternoon in San Francisco. I'm pretty sure about that. But I'm not sure about many other things, I have to admit, these days. Uh, at the beginning of the week, we had an interesting conversation with uh, a writer on alcohol called Camper English. Uh, he has a new book out, Doctors and Distillers, The Remarkable Medicinal History of Beer, Wine, Spirits and Cocktails, which suggests for much of the last 500 years, beer, wine, spirits and cocktails have been uh, treated as if they were medicines themselves and people drank them to feel better, to cure their diseases. And then I, I went online to see what the current state of uh, science was in terms of whether or not you should drink. And I found that everyone suggested that any kind of drinking is bad for you. There was something even from CNN Health, which I guess I trust suggests that no, and I'm quoting them here, no amount of alcohol if you're is healthy if you're under 40 years old. So where is the truth when it comes to alcohol and so many other issues? It was interesting because while I was doing this research, I stumbled across a really interesting piece from last month by one of the internet's most interesting and uh, original voices, Isaac Saul on Persuasion, Yasha Munk's publication. Yasha has been on this show many times, uh, in which uh, Isaac said, misinformation is here to stay, and I'm quoting him, uh, many of the things that you believe right now in this very moment are utterly wrong. And of course, he cites some stuff about doctors thinking bloodletting uh, was useful in curing a patient, which might be true for alcohol now. So I'm thrilled that Isaac is joining us. And Isaac, um, you're sitting in front of your pool, aren't you? <laughs> Yes, I got my little fake background up here. Unfortunately, um, speaking of misinformation and bloodletting, I uh, had contracted COVID earlier this week on Sunday. Um, so I'm sort of at the tail end of it. I'm feeling pretty pretty well now and hoping for a negative test here any day. But I've been quarantining in my back little office of my Brooklyn apartment, staying away from my wife and we are um, in a very unfortunate series of events, also moving on Saturday. So in the real world behind me, there's just stacks of Home Depot boxes and garbage. Right, I don't know if we're going to believe you, Isaac. <laughs> so you're one of the, the guys thinking really critically and um, credibly, I guess, about what is true and what isn't true and how we should treat truth on the internet. What's your conclusion? I mean, you're in the business. You're the founder of Tangle Newsletter, which is a newsletter reporting, trying to report on a degree of truth. So you still believe in this thing. How should we be thinking about misinformation? How should we be thinking, for example, Isaac, about whether or not Donald Trump should be allowed back on Twitter? Yeah. So, I mean, these are obviously really big questions. Um I guess my my personal view and a conclusion that I've come to over engaging with these ideas and thinking a lot about this stuff is sort of twofold. One, one is that, generally speaking, I think it's a good thing when we allow people's ideas to exist in the public space. Um, you know, obviously the the free speech battles 
that have been fought started, you know, not 20 or 50 years ago, but thousands of years ago. They've been ongoing. Um, I highly recommend Jacob Manchanga's uh, new book on the history of free speech, uh, where, where he writes about how many of the issues that we think are novel that we're facing today are actually things that have been out there for a long time. And over the course of history, we've seen again and again that attempts for the government to limit speech and attempts for powerful entities, like in today's world, I think social media companies to limit speech, um, almost unanimously always end poorly. And uh, the reason for that is basically that most of the things that we tend to believe are true or hold as scientific fact today are at some point either going to be slightly altered, changed a little bit, or turn out to be wholly wrong. Um, and we've also seen that happen throughout history. So, you know, I am a person who thinks that while misinformation is something that is a, a pretty dangerous part of our public discourse, I also don't think that um, eliminating it or censoring it or removing it wholesale is actually the answer. And what I advocate for in that piece is kind of a more nuanced and I think maybe more accepting approach to what we're facing, um, which is a strategy that relies, you know, more on um, education and context rather than censorship and isolation, which I think is is really the the dominant strategy that we're seeing right now. Isaac, you're a founder of Tangle Newsletter, which is one of the more popular newsletters. You self-defined as an independent journalist, neither net left nor right you're very credible you've won all sorts of awards i'm sure you could get a job on the new york times or the washington post or, or even the wall street journal why have you chosen to go alone why do you do newsletters why are you an online entrepreneur rather than a traditional journalist working for a, for a publication well first of all i think um the biggest answer is because when you name places like the new york times or the wall street journal or the washington post which i think are all places that have excellent journalists and editors working there obviously they're you know considered the best in the business still in in the industry um every american and most global citizens who pay attention to american news immediately have sort of bells that go off in their heads about so what, what bells goes off is it when we when i when i flash up the cover of the new york times versus the cover of the wall street journal well i think for for half the country um approximately when they hear the new york times they think of a left-leaning news outlet that um has abandoned objectivity and is sort of advancing a more progressive and liberal um, view of the world now today. I think I think that's the view of most conservatives and probably most moderates in you America. Think that's true? I think that it's true that the New York Times uses, generally speaking, more progressive language and cover stories that are more interesting to progressives. Yeah. And I think the opinion page is very clearly on the left. Um, it, it's, you know, you have to, when you have these conversations, it's important to sort of delineate between the opinion pages of the New York Times. Yeah, and I, the, I, I the had Brett section. Stevens on the show a couple of years ago, and I had all sorts of editorial issues. Some people said, you can't publish any interview with that guy because he's so unacceptable. What, what is it about people like Stevens that pisses people off so much? I mean, he's always seemed to me to be 
reasonably mainstream and coherent. I don't agree with everything he says, but uh, I certainly don't believe that he should be banned in any way. Yeah, he's a thoughtful conservative who's actually pretty close to the center on a lot of most a lot of the big issues. Um, the reason he pisses people off is because he's being published in the New York Times. Uh, that that's actually the whole point of my newsletter is that uh, people who read the New York Times are mostly today now more liberal Americans. And because they read the New York Times, being exposed to somebody like Brett Stevens is an event for them. It's something that doesn't happen very often. And when it does, it upsets them a lot because he has worldviews that are very different from theirs. And the proposition of my newsletter, where we cover one topic every day and then we explicitly share views from the left and the right on that topic, is that we need the country as a whole to do more to step outside of the bubbles that we're all living in, to step outside of the, the self-curated news bubbles that we're all living in. And so um, someone like Brett really, you know, if he was publishing his stuff in Fox News or The Federalist or, you know, a more far right paper or digital outlet or whatever, I don't think he would upset that many people because most liberals just wouldn't read him. But it's the fact that he's at the New York Times and he gets the boost from the New York Times name and the brand and their huge readership. And a lot of liberals come across his work that he upsets a lot of people because he views the world differently from them. And I think um, the fact that he upsets people is actually proof that we are doing a really terrible job of engaging the other side's ideas and thoughts in, in our country today, no matter what side you're on. I mean, people on the right are living in their own bubbles too, obviously. Right. So these bubbles, Isaac, do people object on the left and, you know, on the left, do they object to, for example, um, uh, Brett Stevens because he's wrong or because he's immoral? And the same is true, of course, uh, from concert, from the perspective of conservatives of columnists in the New York Times, is the objection is our obsession today with truth or morality? Or are we mixing the two up so that we collapse them? I personally believe that it's morality. I mean, I think um, I think I think morality is something that trumps a uh, a pursuit of truth for most people who are politically engaged in the country. Um, there's a great deal of research and writing that's been done about this. But, you know, the, there are studies on people who voters who will look at a candidate for five seconds before he said anything and make all sorts of judgments about who they are and what they might represent and how they feel about them. Um, there are words that certain political writers, someone like Brett Stevens might use, uh, like, for instance, calling an undocumented immigrant an illegal alien that will immediately trigger an emotional response from more progressive readers that will just, you know, default them into a mode where they are looking for something that's a hole in their theory, looking for something that's wrong about their, their worldview. And instead of assigning any kind of truth to that, they're assigning a certain moral label to, to who he is. They, you know, they'll, they'll believe or convince themselves that he's somebody who has poor moral character and thus he can't be right about this issue that he's, he's writing about. So I think a lot of what we're seeing in the kind of polarization space today is actually a, a knee jerk emotional response and the reasoning comes after. Um, and again, I think there's a lot of, a lot of writing and research to suggest that that's what's happening. So to me, it's, it's not that someone like Brett is wrong on every issue. I, I think that's actually 
really unlikely. Um, I think he's probably right about a lot of stuff in terms of, you know, truth and reason and logic. But I think because of who he is and what he represents to a lot of people, it becomes sort of a, a motivated reasoning to, to find the flaws in his position and in his writing because they don't like a lot of things about his political views. Isaac, uh, you're suggesting then, and I, I think most people would probably accept this argument that that there is a label, a political and ideological label to readers both of the Times and the Wall Street Journal and presumably the people who publish them. What about in political terms? We did a show actually earlier today with the No Labels uh, political organization, which is founded by um, Nancy Jacobson, their CEO. Uh, They're building a third force in, in politics. And she told me today that she thought that a, a rematch of Biden and uh, Trump in 2024 would be what she called a uh, a black uh, a black swan event, uh, which would result in profound change. Is what you're trying to do at Tangle, in journalistic terms, the kind of thing that Nance is doing at No Labels? Are you trying to put together a publication without labels, or is that possible? I, I think there's definitely some synergy there. I mean, I, first of all, I I think that our country is suffering from a duopoly and I, I support work like the work that she's doing to introduce more mainstream and third and fourth and fifth political parties. I think that would be a good thing for the country because um, we, we need another force besides the right and the left and besides Republicans and Democrats. Otherwise, every decision becomes a binary one. And and that is how you end up with two historically unpopular candidates like President Biden and President Trump running for office for the second time in a row in 2024, which I agree would be a a pretty big disaster for the country. Um, That being said, you know, my my goal is not to moderate people's views. It's not even to change people's minds. It's certainly not to get everybody to hold hands and and be friends, um, though I, I think some of that happens when people read my newsletter. It, it's even more fundamental than that. It's that I, I don't believe that most Americans who are politically engaged actually understand the quote unquote other side's perspective. So, you know, if you sit down with someone who is a self-described progressive and very liberal and you ask them about views from the right or conservative views, or if they can articulate the conservative view for immigration reform or healthcare reform or on race and gender ideology, um, I don't think that most progressives can actually articulate what the mainstream view on the other side is, or even what a more center right view might be. And most of them, they're entirely informed by what the far right perspective is on big issues. And the true, the same is true in reverse. Um, most conservatives and Republicans, when they think of the Democratic Party today, they think of the furthest left, most progressive people There are, they think of certain kind of demographics and social groups that they believe represent those those groups. Um, There's been really fascinating, again, research and data and studies about this. 
Um, for instance, I, I think in a recent study that the University of Chicago did, they asked Democrats how many, what percentage of Republicans they believe made something like over $250,000 a year. And the average answer was something like 35 or 40 percent. That's how many, you know, that, that's, what re, that's what Democrats thought of Republicans when the reality was about 2% of Republicans in America, registered Republicans, actually make more than $250,000 a year. So sort of like Democrats think Republicans are just kind of rich white guys. That's how they view them. Um, and when they asked Republicans about Democrats, they saw all sorts of things like they believed, you know, 30 or 40% of all Democrats were members of the LGBTQ community when 6% of them are. Um, they thought black people were higher, more represented in the Democratic Party or as registered Democrats than they actually are. Um, there, there's, you know, forget views even. It's just even on the demographic stuff, we have huge misconceptions about each other. So uh, the premise of the newsletter is, I want to take you out of the bubble that most Americans, I believe, are living in and expose you to views and beliefs that a more diverse and eclectic set of political voices have. And you're going to not like some of the stuff you read, for sure. You'll probably like some of it. You'll see some of yourself in it. And a lot of it, I think, will make you think and maybe reconsider your views. And that's kind of that's kind of the premise and the idea for me. Yeah, I just signed up before um, before our conversation. I got a nice generic email from you saying uh, what you want to do. And you've suggested that, and I'm quoting you here, I create a tangle because today's political media is totally broken. Much of the media itself is biased, sensationalized, and often helps spread lies and misperceptions. One of the things that intrigues and surprises me about tangle is that you're probably more optimistic about readers, certainly than I am. I mean, you believe that people are willing to read both sides. And given how many people have actually signed up to Tangle, that's the case. Uh, b- before you answer that, um, uh, 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 Isaac, tell me a little bit about the history of, of Tangle. When you started it, h- how many resources you needed to start it and, and where you're at now? Yeah, sure. So uh, first of all, I I was not at all confident about how this project would turn out. Um, Part of the reason that I did it was because you know, I, I had a mission. I was very mission oriented. I believe that the media space was broken. I believe the way we were reporting the news was broken. I was a politics reporter for, you know, seven or eight years working for different media organizations inside different newsrooms, getting stuff published in different places. And you were a pretty big deal. Sorry to jump in here. I mean, you were, <laughs> you were, according to Yahoo News anyway, one of the 16 people who shaped the 2016 election. So we can blame you, Isaac, for Trump's election. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, that's my, uh, that's that's my shining star right there. Um, yeah, no, I mean, look, I, I wrote a lot of stuff that got traction and, you know, got millions of views and I think did influence the conversations people were having about the 2016 election and the 2020 election and um, a lot of the stuff that happened in between. But I know based on the work that I've done and and kind of the diversity of places that my work has been published that you know, if you're publishing something in the Huffington Post, for example, which is where I got my first job when I was 22, um, only a very specific subset of Americans are going to read it. And they're all going to be very progressive or liberal. And they're already going to be usually based on a lot of the people who work there, they're going to be, you know, have preconceived notions that 
help them already, you know, you're just reaffirming the beliefs they already have basically. So I learned that from working there that, you know, I didn't, I didn't take that job because I was a bleeding heart liberal. I took it because I applied a bunch of other places and they were the only ones that gave me a job. But when I worked there, I, I learned very quickly who the readership was and how easy it was to kind of play to their desires and their wants and feed them the red meat, you know, um and so well, actually not the red meat because they're probably all vegetarians or yeah right right and so um as i moved through my career i realized that this was you know something that was really broken about the space and so i wanted to build something that both conservatives and liberals and people in the middle would read and trust and want to share with people and feel like they were being represented and challenged and learn something and so um about three years ago actually tomorrow is the uh the three-year anniversary of the very first newsletter I sent out. So it's a pretty big day for me. Um, about three years ago, I sent out, you know, the first newsletter to about 50 friends and family members. And I had this concept and it's, it's pretty simple. I introduce a topic, a big debate people are having. I tell you, so you for know, example, uh, abortion, for example, or, or climate change stuff that, um, you know, I mean, the, the, no surprises here, right? Right. Yeah. We generally try and do a new, a new main topic every day. And usually something that is creating buzz that's, you know, on the home pages, t- being talked about in the opinion pages, trending on social media, or just something a bunch of readers have requested that we covered. But generally we try to cover topics where, there's debate about what to do. There's not like a super strong consensus. We're trying to address things that are, that are dividing the country. And, um, and then I'll, you know, introduce the topic in the most neutral language possible, which is honestly the hardest part of the newsletter. And then I'll give you three perspectives from the left. So I'll quote liberal voices from the middle left all the way to the fringe left. I'll, I'll pull excerpts from columns that have been written present those arguments and then give you the same thing on the right. And then after you read the left and the right, I share a little mini opinion piece. That's my take. That's clearly labeled. This is my personal opinion, my reflection on the arguments and the story and what's been happening. And when you're done reading, you basically get seven different opinions from all across the political spectrum on top of a breakdown of some of the really most basic facts and you know when you're reading reporting and you know when you're reading opinion you do, These are all online pieces that are free. So you just basically link to them, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I, I'm, I'm quoting stuff that other writers have written for, you know, kind of the middle section of the, the newsletter, which is the left and the right section. And then I'm sharing my own personal opinion, which is, yeah, a little mini piece that I write every day. And People seem to really like it because they get a full, complete, holistic view on a big issue. They get something that's personal, which is me talking to them. And they get a bunch of links that they can click on and click out to and and go read if they want more information or want to do their own research. And I'm not trying to tell people what to think. I'm not trying to tell them how to feel. I'm just sharing a wide range of views and exposing people to different ideas about you know some of the big conversations that we're having. So you've grown. It's not just you anymore. You're produced by a social media manager, three editors, and a team of research assistants. How many people have you got now subscribing to Tangle? Yeah. So today we are just about to break 40,000 readers on our free list. Is that paid? No, that's, that's 40,000 free. And how many paid? 
and we have 6,500, 6,500, a little more than that paying subscribers now as of today. And are you working on uh, Substack, which is monetizing these sorts of things, or do you use another platform? So I launched on Substack. That was where I started. Um, and uh, in September, maybe, yeah, about, about a year ago, a little less than a year ago, I moved, migrated from Substack over to Ghost, which is um, a similar platform for independent creators, but uh, for me was a little bit of a better financial business decision because they charge a yearly fee to use their platform rather than take a cut of the revenue. Um, and my, my revenue got to a point with Substack where it didn't make a lot of sense for me to be giving them 10% of the revenue I was making anymore. So which was, when uh, Substack calls itself the home for great writers and readers, they might say the home for poor writers and readers. <laughs> they take no, too much, uh, uh, Isaac? I I think that what they offer for a lot of people is, is actually worth that value. Um, I think it depends on what kind of publication you're running and what work you're doing. I'm a huge, huge fan of Substack. Um, I, I definitely don't want to disparage them in any way. I think they're doing incredible work and they're, they're changing the media space in a really positive way. They changed my life. Uh, I wouldn't be here today if, if they didn't exist. Um, but you know, you, you have to think about that trade-off. If you're someone who's a creator, um, you have to think about, you know, what kind of support you want and need. And, uh, the decision I made was was basically that I felt like if I left with the money that I had, I could I could fill the gaps that Substack filled. Um, but it hasn't been easy. It wasn't an easy transition. Right. So, how, so you said you got what about sixteen hundred paid subscribers? Uh, sorry, six thousand five hundred paid. Six thousand. Well, that was a that was an error. So, and what do they get that the free people don't get? So the paid subscribers get, first of all, the, the biggest thing they get is they get Friday editions. So we send a daily newsletter Monday through Thursday. Um, that's free to anyone who wants to try it. And then the paid subscribers get a Friday edition, which is always a bit more, I would say unique. It's not our typical Monday through Thursday format. Um, it's often exclusive content that's, you know, real reporting or a personal essay or a transcription of an interview I did with somebody, or it's a reader requested piece. So um, I let subscribers, you know, submit requests for content they want to see in the newsletter, and then I try and create it. Uh, they also get access to the comment section so they can engage with people in the comment section of our stories. And I'm very transparent about the business and the financials and the analytics of the company. So when you're a subscriber, I basically treat you as a, a little mini investor. So I'll send out, you know, quarterly updates on the business and, and what's happening and kind of pull the curtain back on the operations and give people a chance to offer feedback and fill out surveys in order to shape the future of the newsletter or help me make big decisions I'm making about how to run the newsletter. And so it's kind of a big smorgasbord of the things that you get. So how much revenue are you establishing with 6,500 paid subscribers a year? 6,500 paid subscribers is about $30,000 a month in revenue, which is around $360,000 a year. Um, so now we're fortunate enough where we're putting a big chunk of that back in the business. Um, obviously, we're growing the team. 
We have an internship program we're running where we're paying some interns stipends to come on. I have some editors, like you mentioned, and a podcast we're funding, and we're hoping to put some more money back into revenue. But um, it's a really good business model. It's a slow grind. It takes a it takes a while to build that out. It's taken me three years to get here, and I did it, you know, bootstrap. There are no investors, so I have no debt or anything like that. Um, but that's a tough way to do it. And, uh, I'm, I'm very glad I did it that way because it gives me a lot of freedom and flexibility now, but it, it took a, a ton of work. Um, so let's and- go back to your misinformation piece and this, this tricky, slippery issue of truth is tangle a way of redefining truth in the internet age by suggesting that if you come, I don't know, let's use the example of, um, of abortion, for example, an intensely controversial issue, or for that matter, um, the Trump election, which I know you cover as well with Dinesh D'Souza's 2000 Mules. Are you saying that if you cover it from all angles and you leave it up to serious readers, people who are willing to read different people's opinions, that they will come to a truth, not the truth? Is that one way of redefining truth in the internet age? Yeah, I, I think that's a good way to say it. I mean, I, I'm, de- I'm definitely not trying to tell people what the truth is. Um, I think I think what I'm trying to do is clear some of the, the brush out of the way and, and make it a bit easier for people to find the garden. You know, I, I don't I don't want people to have to read 20 different news outlets in order to get an idea of what actually happened or why a vote failed or whether the election was stolen. That, that kind of information shouldn't be so inaccessible. And the reason it is, is because there's a lot of people interested in muddying the waters on, on both sides of the aisle. And so my hope is that by doing something like this, we give people kind of a one-stop shop to find a truth um, related to you know, any of the big conversations that were happening today. I mean, abortion is a good example of something where, you know, there isn't going to be a truth or the truth for anybody. Mm. Um, We all have different moral compasses and different feelings about that issue. But what I can do is synthesize what some of the arguments are that are out there and reflect on them and put them in one place. And um, to me, one of the big issues we have is that, you know, the for for instance the 2000 mules documentary the election fraud stuff a lot of that conversation is happening just in right-wing spaces right now it's just in conservative yeah. spaces and when that happens there's no dissent there's nobody actually yeah, and there's so up. much hysteria amongst anyone left of center or even in the center on this idea that the election could have been fraudulent that it's impossible to have a coherent conversation i'm curious on um abortion, it seems to be a singular issue in the, in my mind, at least, the arguments on both sides are credible, coherent, and often incredibly serious. Um, But it's such a profoundly divisive issue. There doesn't seem to be any real equivalent, I guess, maybe gun law, you you wrote an interesting piece in persuasion about being broken on gun law, but you can understand both arguments too. Are there some issues that are beyond the pale for you at Tangle that you won't tangle with no uh i'm proud to say i think that we 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 walk into pretty much every fire that's out there and um there's no doubt that's cost me some subscribers and fans and strained some relationships but 
uh, I think we'd be we'd be faking it if we didn't do that. Um, we we've covered. What about everything. Holocaust denial? I mean, uh, you. Uh, I'm guessing you're Jewish, Isaac. Uh, in fact, there was a wonderful film uh, on the Holocaust called Son of Saul. Uh, I, I mean, would you would you do a tangle on covering people who denied the Holocaust? So it's interesting. I mean, for, first of all, yes. I think if if it became a if it became a news item, then certainly, um, you know, I think that would be actually a pretty cathartic experience because I think the evidence of the Holocaust is pretty well documented. But, um, you know, I, I, for me, I'm trying to cover stuff that is sort of in the, you know, in the American national political space. So um, it's not it's not just picking out, you know, debates and conspiracies that we can find that will drum up a lot of reader interest, although that would be kind of fun. Um, it's more trying to find, you know, big news items that are happening that are out there in the national American political space and then trying to break down what's actually going on. So, you know, something like that, unless it became an issue like a presidential candidate denied the Holocaust or something, um, would probably be a little bit jarring or irrelevant for a lot of the readers and what they're looking for. Uh, but certainly it's not something that's, you know, uh, above the pale or for us. I mean, beyond the pale for us. I, I, I will, I, I believe pretty much every topic is, is worthy of debate if there's interest in it and is worthy of the conversation. Um, you know, in America today, I think probably the most sensitive issues are abortion and trans issues. Um, climate change, I guess, as well. Climate change is probably up there. Yeah. And, and we cover all of those and, and they're extremely divisive issues. And our readers have to deal with seeing a lot of opinions that they don't like if they're going to read our newsletter. It was interesting in my conversation with Nancy today, uh, she's a bit of a Washington insider, and she spoke quite warmly of Joe Manchin, uh, who, of course, doesn't always get the best of press. You wrote some stuff about him. Do you think in epistemological or ontological terms, the truth is the ep political equivalent to Joe Manchin? Won't make anyone particularly happy? <laughs> That's an interesting um an interesting thought pattern. I, I I don't know that I would say all that. I mean, I, I think um, I think Joe Manchin's a great politician in the sense that he understands his constituents and he understands the country and he knows how to get what he wants. Uh, and I think that he's honest about who he is and and what he wants to do and what his goals are. And um, I have a great deal of respect for him in, in all of those regards. Uh, I do think that you know, oftentimes the truth doesn't make people comfortable. And I, I do think the truth is often um, requires putting aside emotion in order to for formally understand or grasp. But, um, you know, I, I don't think any, any one politician or person is, is representative of that kind of ethos of, you know, difficult middle or center ground. I mean, Joe Manchin is is very moderate on certain things, but he's also, you know, more conservative or more liberal on a lot of issues. Um, and so it just kind of depends what you're talking about and what spaces you're operating in. But, uh, you know, I, I, I don't have, you know, I, I do think that there's a, a big overreaction to people like him. I don't think he's some evil doer. I think he's, uh, think he's a guy who understands the state that he's supposed to represent and understands where the country is on a lot of issues. And he's probably closer to most typical Americans than 
uh, a lot of senators in Washington are right now. Isaac, you're doing what a lot of young journalists and writers would love to do, which is build a, a career without a boss as an entrepreneur. You're not taking money from idiot VCs, so you don't have to be nice to them. <laughs> what advice would you give aspiring writers or journalists, both in the nonfiction and even in the fiction space? Yeah, I mean, look, I would say um, some of the cliche things that are out there I've found to be very true. Um, I think one of the best pieces of advice I got and the thing that really led to Tangle was to think about the thing that I wanted and needed as a consumer and then build it. Um, and and this, this is what I wanted. I wanted a one-stop shop where I could get a wide range of views on a big debate. I didn't want to have to read you know, scrolling through 30 different articles or searching opinion pages for a piece about the Joe Manchin Schumer deal to understand what actually happened. I just wish there was one place to go get that thing. And so that's what I tried to make. Um, so th that's number one is to think about stuff that you want or think about stuff you wish existed and then try and build that thing. Um, and the other thing is just to be consistent. Um, you know, that to me, that's, that's been the, the reason that I'm sitting here right now and the reason that Tangle's taken off is because from the very beginning until now, I was very consistent about the product I was offering, about the time of day it came out, about how often I sent it every week. And that consistency has helped me build a relationship with people, with readers. And so whatever you're doing, if it's a daily, a weekly, a monthly, if you're going to send on Tuesdays or whatever, um, just keep the rhythm and keep that drumbeat. And I think that's that's a really simple, low-hanging fruit, big way to be successful. Well, Isaac, I'm going to let you go swimming in one second. But before <laughs> I let you do that, um, well, you're obviously doing a, a huge amount of reading online, which uh, is good. Do you still read books? I hope you do. Are there books that you oh. would recommend our, our listeners and viewers? Of course, yes. Um, the the book that I always recommend to people and uh, conveniently actually just reread very recently is The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, which I yeah. think is um, probably one of the best books to really understand why people feel the way that they do about uh, politics today. Um, and, you know, I mentioned it at the top, but um, Jacob Manchanga has a really, really good book called Free Speech, um, A History. Yeah, do you know him? I do. I interviewed him. Yeah. Uh, was, maybe you can, I'd love to get him on my show as well. Actually. He was a fascinating guy to talk to who has really done his homework. Um, and that book was, you know, every now and then you read something that sort of clarifies views and feelings that you have going in to, that sort of confirms your preconceived notions about things. And, um, that book did a really good job of affirming to me the value of free speech and why it's so important. And, uh, he's an excellent dude, really interesting guy, and and the book's phenomenal. So I definitely recommend it. 